Hello, welcome to Impersonal Opinion. I'm Chandler Klebs and I'm here with George Ortega. And this is the show where we share our opinions and don't take anything personally. <laughs> and so um, George had suggested in the last episode that we talk some more about happiness and how everything else we do is seems to be related to happiness, pleasure, what makes us feel good. And so, George, you've been studying happiness for a long time. So, um, so like, how did you first come to the conclusion that everything was really about happiness? Um, I, I think it may have been something that I just like thought it out, just like this free will thing that, you know, when you think about it, why did, why does anyone do, do anything, you know, if it's not like to feel happy or to become happier, to feel happier, because what's the point of anything otherwise, right? So like, and then, then I learned, um, that Aristotle, you know, however many um, years ago, reached the same conclusion. He, you know, he wrote that everything else is a means in life except that happiness, happiness is the only end in life. Everything else is a means to happiness. Yeah, and it seems plainly obvious. I mean, I, I would think that's fairly uncontroversial, but at the same time, look at the things people do that make them unhappy. And when that is the, you know, and you think this, this thing about people not getting free will is curious. Um, you know, there's our, our entire culture, like they started um, researching happiness back in the late 50s. And one of the things that they discovered is that we humans are really bad at predict, predicting what activities are going to make us happier, like in the future and stuff. And it may be a result of like a modern society that we're not so good right now because like for example a lot of people think well if i become really rich i'm going to be really happy but according to the research above the poverty line once once like a person is no longer poor you know having or earning whatever more money makes either very little difference or no difference at all you know in general so like um you know i, I still can't understand why people don't get that happiness is all they want and the other part of it is like you know if people if, if somebody wants to like you know, um, be a good pianist or a guitarist, you know, or a singer or something, they, they practice and they become better and better. So I still don't get how, like, you know, how there aren't, like, happiness gyms and, and like, you know, how we don't teach happiness in schools. And you know, I, I still don't get how so much, most people are just clueless in terms of, like, you know, the, the science and, and practice and, and art of happiness. Well, yeah, and here's the deal, George. Look at the things people do and the things people believe. Um, everything they do seems to be, you know, towards pleasure and away from pain, you know, hedonic imperative, or whichever is the greater of two goods, the lesser of two evils. But the standard of good, I believe, is based in happiness. Well, yeah, John Locke said that um, a few centuries ago. He said, goodness is that which creates happiness. And then uh, he was a utilitarian philosopher, you know, British, and this, this other British utilitarian, Jeremy Bentham, he then turned around and said, well, the measure of goodness is what creates the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So, yeah, these guys got it. Yeah, and, you know, here's an interesting thought. Now, you remember we had the morality talk with Mitch, and his perspective was interesting, you know, how we can never truly know all the effects that a certain action will have, therefore it's hard to judge the morality of it. But I, t I mean, I disagree with that statement for several reasons. For one thing, 
we can listen to music on our on our iPods or iPhones or or whatever. We can listen to music that we like that makes us happy, and it doesn't hurt anyone. Never can it just hurt somebody for us to listen to music. Right. I think I think the way um, you know I, I understand your point. I think maybe what he means is like for example, let's say you take one person who stays home like so content, stays home listening to music, right? And so they're content with that. Where another person, let's say, um, is feeling really bad and lonely, so they go out and they meet, let's say, uh, you know, uh, somebody who becomes their spouse. You know, they, they meet a woman, you know, there's a guy who meets a woman. So in other words, like, that's an example of, like, the person, let's say, he's, the person's bored, doesn't rely on music or something, you know, gets into a bad mood, and this bad mood, this, like, Maybe it's a, you can even define it as an immoral act of just like being depressed and sad when one doesn't have to. Then all of a sudden that leads to like, you know, perhaps greater happiness. So, but, but, you know, I, I do get your point that, you know, that in general, at least for the immediate, you know, um, for our, our immediate, you know, time frame, that there, there does seem to be, you know, actions that are, you know, you know, objectively good good and 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 not good yeah yeah and while i i agree entirely with it with his premise that we can't predict all the effects that a lot of actions will have i think that only applies to certain moral situations i don't think it's universal everywhere like clearly it's true if there's two people who are about to die like let's say there's two people who are about to die and you can say one or the other. It's true in that situation, you don't really know what the what the effects of that person that you save, what they'll do in their life after you save their life. You, you, don't, you don't know that. Um, that's true, but of course, whichever person we like the best, <laughs> you know, is most likely gonna be the one we're, we're gonna save. But of course, remembering that nobody really has moral responsibility helps us not take that too seriously. That's a good point. One thing I want to like explore is like think about it. Like with happiness, a person can be happy by considering their overall life and being pleased with it. Like you know, they had certain goals that they want to fulfill. You know, get married, raise children, live in a house, whatever it is, and they've gotten there. That makes them happy. Other people are like immersed in like an art, you know, they're painters or musicians or whatever, or scientists, you know, and that that absorption makes them happier, happy. Um, people will, you know, unfortunately, sometimes drink too much, but that makes them happy or people will smoke weed and that makes them happy. And so like people will exercise. In other words, what I'm saying is like there are so many roots to happiness and most people will define happiness as, as in terms of what creates it like most people are well i'm happy when i'm around people and see like the thing is that you know that's not really happiness that's what creates happiness but what i'm intrigued with is like what is the nature of this experience that that it, we can evoke through so many different extremely different avenues you're right there's so many different ways people achieve happiness you know so many things that bring it about and what's interesting about that is that there's that means there's not just one path for everyone. And I think there's a mistake people make. They think, well, this person does this and they seem happy. So if I do everything the same as them, then I'll be happy. That tends to not work out so well because you find out you're not the same person as them.
That's true. And the other thing is like, you know, when, when people, when we describe happiness, let's say scientifically, we kind of use a reductionist model where, you know, we basically describe the biochemistry that, you know, these neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine and, you know, endorphins and stuff will get, you know, released and that will release, that will create this feeling of pleasure that translates into the feeling of happiness. Fine, I get that. I get that's the, uh, the chemistry. But what I want to understand is like more fundamental, more conceptually, more philosophically, what is this feeling? You know, like, um, again, the feeling of happiness disconnected what, from what, what, you know, created it. You know, what is this thing? Yeah, um, that's an interesting thing because I think that's difficult for many people to do is they always think of happiness in connection with a certain thing. Um, and so the idea of focusing on the feeling of happiness um, is one that I haven't really been able to do. I just know that there's certain things that I get a thrill out of. And yeah, I mean, I think the reason you're not able to do it is like, I remember like when I first tried it, it was difficult for me. I would have to kind of like think of something that made me happy and that would create the feeling. And then I would try to like just separate what made me happy from the feeling. But like that's something that our culture just doesn't teach us to do. You know, it's not, you know, I think if we were like raised from a very early age to be able to tap into that feeling and just maintain it, you know, somehow through some kind of training or whatever, I think we'd all be really good at it. But, you know, our, our culture isn't designed that way, which, which is like, again, a, 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 real, a real curiosity. It's, it's like if happiness is all we really want, it just bewilders me how we're so, you know, bad at it in general as a world. Yeah. And, and here's another thing that's interesting, George. Now, you know, there's a lot of people, they say, well, life isn't about happiness. It's about doing the right thing. It's about morality. And, and you know what I mean? But here's the deal is I think that morality is based on happiness because some people do something because making others happy um, makes them happy. They feel like they're helping somebody, and I know that feeling, you know, um, or perhaps they're doing it because they believe that they earn a better afterlife after they die if they do considered good actions that gives them good karma or something. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I agree with you completely. That, that's what, again, that's why John Locke said goodness, he defined goodness as that which creates happiness. So, you know, what, how could something possibly be good unless it was making people happy? Now, now of course, we got to consider like sometimes a person might do something that makes them very happy, but might at the same time make a lot of other people unhappy. So, you know, we have to, you know, weigh the, 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 um, the good, the happiness and the unhappiness, you know, that, that might come from a certain act in terms of like determining whether it's good. And I guess in a certain sense, some, some of our acts can be both good or um, good and not good, but, um, in different degrees. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because here's the thing. Think about this. Now, a person, for example, who, um, well, they, they say that they get pleasure out of killing Jews. 
<laughs> you know, it always this always comes up. So whether it's the Jews or it's the, or it's the blacks or whether it's the pigs or whatever, wh whenever someone's racist or speciesist or sexist, what they do is like for some reason they get pleasure out of discriminating against a certain type of life form. And they kill them, and they must be getting some pleasure out of that, or why are they doing it? Yeah, and the answer is easy. Like, for example, like, throughout the world, like, we had this Cold War with Russia and China. They were communists. We were capitalists. They were the bad guys in our eyes. We were the bad guys in their eyes. So, like, so we'd want to, you know, if we, if we got into a war, war with them, we'd want to kill them because we're seeing them as the bad guys, you know, and they, vice versa. So that always explains it, you know, like— People who, 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 you know, target certain groups in their mind, you know, very unfortunately, mistakenly, you know, much more often than not, they just like say, well, these people are, you know, bad and, you know, it's a great thing to, to you know, go to war with them and all. So like, yeah, um, it's well, unfortunate. Yeah. One thing about this, George, is think about it. Let's say that someone gets such a pleasure out of killing things that they kill everything else and then there's nothing left for them to kill. Then they don't have a source of happiness anymore. So they have to have a happiness that's independent of killing things. Yeah, that have to kill themselves. <laughs> I know, and that doesn't bring them happiness because they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> and you have nothing, yeah. Again, that, that brings me back to the question, like, you know, did happiness, because like, you know, all right, the, the Earth is uh, 4.5 billion years old or so, and I think life on Earth, the Earth is about four billion years old and all, but I think I think I did some research into this, and I may be really really wrong with this, but like I think the first sentient life, the first life that was capable of feeling pleasure and pain, I think they refer to them as decapods, and these are like crustaceans, like lobsters and crabs and all these like these crustaceans that have ten feet. And so, like, you gotta, you gotta wonder, like, before these organisms evolved, you can't say there was either happiness or hap or unhappiness in the world, and you can't say that there was either goodness or or evil, because without happiness or unhappiness, how could there be goodness or evil? Well, you know, that's a good point, George, because you know this debate between objective and subjective morality. I used to say that I used to be like a proponent of objective uh, morality and saying, well, some things are absolutely right and other things are absolutely wrong. Um, but at the same time, uh, they're sort of subjective in that unless there are conscious beings who are getting happiness or unhappiness, pleasure or pain, out of something, how would it ever be labeled as good or bad? Exactly, yeah. Good and bad require sentient beings. Yeah, and so what's interesting about this is that seems like an attribute of life as we know it the, these days. Like, like maybe some of the lowest life forms um, may not feel pleasure or pain, and I certainly hope not. I would certainly hope that microorganisms that are killed all the time are not feeling pain. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Yeah, but we do know that most most things that we can see without a microscope, you know, probably are feel something, some sense of pleasure and pain. Well, yeah, like, and you're right, because, um, for example, like a single-celled organism in a Petri dish, you know, they might move toward where, you know, 
it's it's darker or move toward where there's light in that petri dish. So there's there's some kind of preference they have. So that might be some kind of fundamental, you know, happiness, unhappiness. Yeah. You know, they're, you know, they're seeking pleasure, avoiding pain. Yeah. And also, it, like when you consider it, like let, let's say even if you were to take uh, like an ant, uh, one of the smallest creatures that I can see, you know, um, and then you consider, well, if this ant is stepped on, it's probably killed so quick that it probably doesn't feel very much pain for very long. You know, but then when but then say some some um, human is in a car wreck, well, they bleed, they they get injured, they body parts get torn off, you know, they they bleed slowly and they die a painful way, m very long and drawn out because the more cells you have, the more you can suffer. Yeah, and that that's why I'm I'm so against carnism against like you know eating animals because like you're right in the wild you know a lion will ch chase a gazelle and it's over it might be over you know for the gazelle within like 10 15 seconds you know like um you know whereas like in today today with the factory farms you know you have a female pig a sow that's confined to a a, a crate where it's so small she can't even like turn around for months at a time I mean, that is so sick. I mean, like, you know, along with not understanding how people in our world don't get that, that happiness is what they really want and then don't, you know, understand the wisdom of just like working on it. I don't I can't get how people are so evil as to just like, you know, eat meat. Don't think about it. They, you know, people know what's going on because of the Internet. I mean, like even even back before the Internet, people understood what was going on. And somehow they just like, you know, I don't know, but it's, it's like it's, it's so horrific. Yeah, I think nature before human beings came along was much more merciful than 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 um, than the human species is. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought about that because, you know, let's say you're a fish somewhere that gets eaten by a shark. Well, your head gets just bitten off and separated from your from whatever the rest of you you probably are knocked out pretty quickly. Nothing at all like years of suffering in factory farms. I know, I know. And it's it's interesting, you know, because I I learned about the animal industries late in life. You know, I it was it wasn't until I was in my twenties when I started finding out about it. And here's what's interesting about it is that I you know I kind of got into it because of this issue where people are asking well why is human life more valuable than other animals so why why do humans deserve special protection you know like you know just uh, to mention this quickly is that in the abortion debate so much it, of the debate centers around with one side saying the unborn are human the other side saying they're not human and i'm like uh that's not relevant to me because I, I no longer view humans as a special thing. So I'm like, yes, it's a human, because it, it, it's not a squirrel that I know of, but I don't, it's, it's not about that. <laughs> no, I know, I know. We got to like, and you know, here's the thing. Um, you know, apparently, I think I, I learned recently that with that, each generation that comes, the, the IQ, you know, increases about 10%. And, you know, I think these generations, especially now with the access to this information, you know, and in-depth information, 
with the internet and all. I think that maybe over the next 20, 30, 40 years, you know, as we're dealing with climate change, we have to deal with that, that I think people were, will finally, you know, you know, become much wiser in terms of like becoming kinder and seeking happiness and just like understanding, understanding the basic, you know, the nature of our lives much, much better than, than previous generations. Partly it's because like, you know, especially, you know, 100 years ago, for example, you know, people were too busy trying to survive to just like develop this kind of like practice or this art of life. You know, some rich people, I guess, back then, you know, cultivated that art. But for the most part, you know, people just were trying to survive. Whereas now, you know, I mean, sure, people have to work eight, 10 hours a, um, a day, five days a week, whatever. But, you know, after that, it's like, you know, there's no struggle for survival. So now, like, I think the struggle is to kind of like become a better species morally and become a happier species. Yeah. And here's the interesting thing is while, of course, humans don't have a free will, such an ability wouldn't even be helpful. You know, like what's the point in being free to do something other than your strongest desire? <laughs> right. But no, no. I mean, like, even though it doesn't make sense um, conceptually, but like if I had a free will, in other words, like if I had because um, there's a me, there's a me that that identify with that that wants to be blissed out all the time. Right. Yeah. So I figure if I had a free will, fine, it wouldn't be free in, in the sense you just mentioned, because like I would be programmed to want that anyhow. But, you know, it'd be great to just like, all right, I want to be blissed out all the time and I'm blissed out all the all the time and everybody else would probably be blissed out also. Exactly, because that's the interesting thing is here's one thing that shows me that people don't have that ability is that they have to believe illusions. They have to believe in certain illusions like free will or they have to believe in, you know, some objective meaning or purpose to life um, because otherwise they get depressed if they don't feel like they have a purpose. Um, and I'm thinking, well, if you could bliss yourself out, if you could just choose to just feel happy easily, then you just do that. We'd all be blissed out. There would be no religion or politics. There'd be no crime. We'd all just be so blissed out. Who would care? I hear you. Now, I have a feeling, so like, let's say a hundred years from now, you know, with gener genetic engineering and, and all we're learning about the biochemistry of happiness, I have a feeling to, the, to a large extent, um, people are going to be really blissed out. There's this philosopher, um, British philosopher, David Pierce, he incidentally, you know, has written and talked about us not having a free will, so he gets it. He wrote this book that I found on Kindle. I think it might be a, a dollar or it might actually be free, whatever. Let me called, guess. It's called The Hedonistic Imperative. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and this guy's like talking about like engineering a species of completely blissed out people. It's very cool. Yeah, I know the name of that book. I, I think I actually might have it like on iBooks or something, whatever, or something like that. I, and I think you can find it free online. I think he's uploaded it to Internet Archive. Yeah, yeah, because he wants to spread the information as widely as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's... yeah, so like, you know, again, like, you know, again, we got to deal with climate change and stuff like that. But like 100 years, 200 years tops. This, you know, everybody, the, the, the human species at least, is going to be blissed out. We're not going to be like torturing animals anymore. 
We're, we're not going to be like hurting each other. We're just going to be, it's going to be like a heaven on earth. Pretty amazing. Yeah. It, it's, it's very interesting because ha you know what? Happy people just aren't as mean. <laughs> they're, people are nicer when they're happy. Uh, and you know what's cool about this? I mean, like certainly with psychopharmacological solutions, gen gen um, genetic engineering, that's possible and all. But actually, we don't even need that. In other words, like if let's say everybody in the um, industrialized nations, the rich countries of the world were to and even in the other countries, I mean, there's something everybody can do. If everybody were to just like spend, let's say, even an hour a day. I mean, this is how easy this is. If everybody, you know, on the planet were spending an hour a day just learning about happiness, practicing happiness, talking about it, whatever, I would guarantee within six months, a year, people, this, this place would be blissed out. Because, like, becoming happier, becoming really happy, especially when you're working with everybody else on the same goal and everybody gets it, it's really a no-brainer. It's not, it's not, it, it is like, you know... To be a, a good guitar player, you got to practice. You can't like go from not playing guitar to playing really well in a week or two. It might take a couple of years or so. That's but, true. <laughs> but you know the, the the actual you know chords and stuff. It's easy. You know you just practice. Yeah. Yeah, that's just it. Just like anything else that can be practiced, and and so you know I'm kind of learning to do that in a sense realizing um I, I guess you know the old method of counting your blessings you know the idea thinking about the good things you have that seems to be working for me realizing that i i mean i have so much there's so so much i have going on and and so i i'm pretty happy you know yeah and, and actually yeah it's like but it's see here's the deal it's not that i'm rich it's not like like the things that most people get happiness from because I don't own a house or, or a car. I don't have load, loads of money and I'm certainly not having sex, which a lot of people are doing and they think that makes them happy. But the deal is I crave philosophical discussion. And when we do these podcasts, I get super, I just feel so blissed. <laughs> I know it's, it's cool. It's like we can actually define happiness in terms of like, um, a spectrum of morality. Some forms of happiness are much more good, more moral than others. I think these kinds of discussions are, are up there. You know, doing like, for example, doctor, doctors and nurses and, you know, um, medical staff, they devote their careers, their lives to, to healing people, to keeping people healthy. You know, to the extent they get their happiness that way, that's a supremely, you know, moral a form of happiness so but but yeah like understanding because like a lot of times if we're going to create um, a better world we have to talk about it we have to understand what we have to do so these kinds of discussions are, are you know are pivotal to that yeah it's kind of interesting um and that reminds me when you said a happier world that made me think of something i think your your book you know exploring the illusion of free will i think the name of the publisher was a happier world or something like that well that you know a happier world is me i, I self-published it oh so that was what you kind of named your own publisher kind of that's my yeah i created a um um what you yeah uh an entity, yeah, that that right, that publishes absolutely. Yeah, that that's cool. Hey, that that's <laughs> a happier world, you know. Yeah, who doesn't oh, yeah. happier world? What else is there, right? I mean, yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, seriously, like happiness really is the biggest thing because ask any, you know, anyone what uh, what they do, you know, and why are they doing that? It's either, you know, they work their jobs to to, you know, get money so they can buy food and have a place to live. Well, why 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 do they want to have food? Well, it makes the, it makes them happy to eat and to not be hungry. You know. Right. <laughs> now here's the thing, what the challenge for us now is like when we were really young, you know, toddlers, infants, toddlers, you know, we basically um, for the most part, I think we were trying to learn skills. We were trying to, like all these adults were talking, we're trying to figure out what are they saying. Um, then we're trying to learn how to walk. Then later we're trying to learn how to write and how to read and stuff. So like when we're really young, we're learning on these skills. And also I think we're being conditioned to want things that we don't have. You know, if we can't speak, we can't talk, we're, we're learned to like, we're taught to, to want to, to speak, to want to walk. And so like, all you know, so basically we're conditioned, you know, very strongly to want what we don't have. But unfortunately, as the Buddha pointed out, that's a recipe for not much happiness. So because like in, in my work, you know, for about a year now, I've been working to, you know, increase my level of happiness, and it's worked to a great extent, you know. But I recognize that um, in my life, for example, like I have a choice between, let's say, sitting down, evoking the feeling of happiness and feeling it, immersing myself in it, maintaining it, kind of like meditating on it. I've done that. It feels good. But a lot of times, you know, I would prefer to read a book or I prefer to, to watch a TV show sometimes that, and these things are not going to create as much happiness. So then like, you know, it's like we've been brainwashed or, you know, conditioned to do a lot of things that don't, you know, sometimes these things are maybe necessary or sometimes maybe they may be important to greater happiness in the future, but for the most part, they just distract us. So that's, that's the human problem that we've been conditioned to seek things that are not happiness. And then as adults, we have to like recondition ourselves to just focus more more clearly and directly on happiness. Yeah. Um, and I like, yeah, we're at 30 minutes, but I want to extend this to an hour because there's still so much to say on the subject of happiness. Sounds good. Because here's the deal. Like, um, there, you know, there are things that I do that um, tend to make me sad because when I'm watching documentaries, you know, like like the ones about the reasons behind veganism and the animal cruelty and the climate change parts of it, that, you know, watching that stuff doesn't make me very happy. I got to admit. But, you know, what's interesting about it is that I only had to watch those movies once. And now I'm deriving greater pleasure by not being a part of that it's it's just it's kind of a weird feeling but just thinking like thinking about well I've, i'm just eating plants and therefore no animals are harmed in the making of this food i agree with you and yes you know, like the thing is like yeah i don't watch you know any more videos on on animal abuse and things like that because they are painful to watch i think the idea is like once you become a vegan, once you understand the problem, I'm not sure, you know, there's that much of a need. If you want to try to change people's minds, sometimes it might help and all. But in general, once you've learned what you need to learn, 
I'm not sure you have to immerse yourself in in all this suffering to you know because you've already learned the lesson. That's true. And another thing is I want to point out you know to everybody is that you don't have to watch these these documentaries to understand you know the reasoning behind veganism. You know, for one thing, I understood it from just from just reading about it. Um, but for some people, they need something visual because what you see does have power. Um, so maybe for some people, that's what it takes. But I think just the principle for me, all I all I needed to know was that animals do feel pain and are killed, you know, in all these industries. And so that that was all it takes. But the thing is, I have seen, you know, some of the worst, you know, the worst of it of all is earthlings for sure. Um, but yeah, but so I only need, I only watched it once because I just wanted, I just wanted to know, you know, curiosity killed the cat, but the cat has more lives, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the thing is now here's my approach because what, what I used to do is I used to. I used to tell people why I'm a vegan and I don't want to be part of the suffering, but now I want to put a new spin on it and be positive because here's the idea is if I can, the idea is to get in shape, get in really good shape, be strong and healthy and good looking. And in this way, I can promote the idea that yes, I, you know, I can be a strong, healthy dude and just eat plants. And if I do that, and many other people are doing that, there are even like bodybuilder YouTube channels where they're vegans and they're super strong, you know? What, you know, and of course, the horses are vegan, <laughs> you know? And so what's interesting is everything all fits together, George, I, but now I'm doing it in a more happiness way. It's a, it's when, by turning it into a thing about health as well, about, you know, look great, feel great, live longer. Um, that um, is more positive than like, oh, the uh, animal agriculture is is causing more climate change and the animals are suffering. That well, the thing is that's true, equally true, but it's negative. People don't like that. They don't like to focus. So th so you know, they would rather believe that's not happening. But if we but if we point out positive, like, hey, you can live longer and feel feel great, you know, and all that, then it's a positive message. And so that's it, George. What I'm thinking is I want to present happiness as the highest good and determinism and awareness of causes as the road to happiness. Yeah, and and, and, and the way like that happiness connects with, for example, animal abuse and all is um with a lot of things like people um people eat meat because they believe that if they were not to eat this meat that they wouldn't be as happy you know and that's that's why people do a lot of things that they wouldn't otherwise do like you know taking too many drugs or t drinking too much alcohol or something you know anytime we do something that's unhealthy for others or for ourselves it's always kind of like as an attempt to feel happier. So, I mean, the the kind of guiding strategy that that, that kind of fuels my um, my work on promoting happiness is that as people become happier, you know, in ways that are benign that don't hurt themselves or others, 
then there's all of a sudden no need to be cruel to other people or to be cruel to animals and all, you know, there's just like, because a person's just happy. There's no, there's no rationale for, for the cruelty. Yeah. It's interesting because I mean, a, a lot of cruelty it that is done is based on entirely um, non-existent reasons. Like, you know, like the belief that other people deserve to suffer, you know, because that's gone from my system. Like, I, I never think of anybody as deserving anything. Um, and, and, of course, I also, like, I feel that the message that nobody really chooses their life, you know, they don't choose their, their gender, skin color, country where they're born, what language that they're taught. Because of this, you can't be racist. You can't be racist and you can't be speciesist. You just realize that, it, you know... You, you are what you are due to prior causes over which you had no control. And so you see others as an equal. Yeah, Chandler, that's, that's one of the reasons that I do this, this work on free will. I mean, like, um, once, I would guess maybe in 30 years, I don't think it's going to take that long. When people, when everybody gets that nobody has a free will, um, it might even be sooner, um, there, nobody can logically, under that understanding perspective, blame anyone, including themselves, for anything. You know, it's so like without blaming someone, you can't want them to suffer for what they've done. You can't want to seek revenge on them or vengeance. I mean, like so much, I would guess that at least 90% of the conflict, you know, on the planet, you know, has to do with this mistaken belief in free will. You know, sometimes we compete for limited resources, but I think the vast majority of the competition is we're blaming each other and ourselves for what is under nobody's control. And again, once our, you know, global society overcomes that, you know, that that's going to create so much happiness, you know, just in itself. Yeah, and another thing that's interesting, George, is, you know, even people who they believe in free will, you know, they, like, they may not agree with what somebody did, but then once they hear the person's story of why they did what they did, then they have sympathy for them and think, well, I don't blame you, you know, like, you did a bad thing, but I don't blame you, because at the time, that seemed like the best thing to you, and what they're doing is they're they're looking at the causality that compelled that person, and then they see that person as, as innocent, but that's what we're doing with everybody now. I know, and people, people say that they believe in free will, but, you know, again, in, the, in, English, in the English language, we have three popular expressions that kind of suggest that on a deeper level, they understand we don't have free will. Like, for example, like if somebody you know, is very unfortunate, let's say homeless or something, people will say, well, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Or if like somebody's doing something wrong and a third person is blaming them, becoming angry with them, you know, we might say to that third person, hey, you know, this person is doing the best they can, you know, or the last one is like, you know, don't judge a person. And this relates to what you were saying before. Don't judge a person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Because when you understand the life they've had and you know the experiences they've had, the kind of person they were created to be, because we don't create ourselves, then you understand that they had to act the way they did. Yeah, 
and you know, and other things like like father, like son, or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and other nice. examples. Excellent. Those are good. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting because when and you know, we, we you got to admit um, that considering the whole process of natural selection, realizing that we would not be here if our ancestors had not run away from predators. You know what I'm saying? That's one example. That there's a certain way things had to be for survival and the avoidance of pain. And due to that, realizing that free will would almost, it, you know, it's not even a coherent concept, but it would be where there's no pleasure or pain, where we'd be completely ambivalent as to whether or not we were eaten alive. Like we wouldn't really care. <laughs> well, I, I don't say that again. Well, yeah. What I'm saying is, if we just freely willed things, and our choices were not were not based on prior causes, or you know, then we when we could just like choose not to run away from predators, we 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 could choose to just stay and burn in flames instead of running out of the burning building. You know what I'm saying? All right. We'd have no reason to do one thing over another. Absolutely. Exactly. And because we're compelled for greater satisfaction, to go towards pleasure and away from pain, the hedonic imperative cancels out the freedom of choice, even if you leave out the causality and a causality, just the hedonic imperative alone is enough to do it. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yep. Yeah. And so it's interesting because when you look at it, everything about science, same cause, same effect, everything about evolution, everything about anything that happens it has to be that way. We, I mean, we're, like if we can't be given a choice in whether to breathe or not, you don't breathe, you die. <laughs> I know, I know. But again, like the idea is like, um, I mean, even with the, the free will thing is good. Um, sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder whether, you know, let's say our group um, all of a sudden had an epiphany, you know, that like, all right, this free will thing is important. But this happiness thing is, is like actually perhaps much more important because it's more foundational. I'm wondering if we might do the world more good by actually all of a sudden just like making all our podcasts about happiness, about how to make ourselves happier as individuals and how to make our world happier. Well, um, yeah. Well, you know, George, I think we're already off to a great start. And here's why. Because the free the revelation that there's no free will is the key that opens the door to happiness. I really think so. Because you you lose the the blame, the the guilt, the regrets. You, you lose so many negative, unhappy feelings once you have this understanding that it's not your fault. You know, and then since we you know we have our free will science religion podcast but then since we're doing impersonal opinion and we've already covered we've talked about happiness on at least two other previous episodes in this series and so what we're doing is we're sort of going back and forth we're talking about the free will thing but then we're also talking about happiness and that the biggest thing ever that would happen would be a happiness pillar just something that blisses us out that's what we really want well, it's true. I mean, in a certain sense, if we were to um, pursue happiness more naturally, that might be better. But we have to recognize because we don't have a free will, many of us wouldn't have the motivation to, let's say, work on their happiness an hour a day and, and do certain things. So, yeah. So like if there was 
and and you know there actually may be you know happiness pills out there like for example I just learned about this ingredient called SAME, S-A-M-E, and it's a natural ingredient that our body actually produces, but it can be manufactured, and like it was discovered, I think, in Italy in 1952, somewhere around there, and in Italy, as, as well as a few other countries, European countries, it's actually used as an antidepressant. But I have a feeling that this, you know, some antidepressants um, won't make regular people who aren't depressed um, happier, you know. But but I think this this Sammy does. Like I think I think Prozac I think makes regular people happier. You know, if a person isn't depressed, but let's say they're not feeling good, I think they'll actually there these some of these things like Prozac and a few others will take a person who's like, you know, mildly dissatisfied. And make them happier than the average person. So, so yes, I mean, I, you know, I hope that the pharmacological industry, you know, wisens up, you know, understands that like that there there'd be a lot. I mean, and you know, people could spend maybe ten dollars a month for these pills, and it wouldn't have to be expensive. And all of a sudden, from one thing, you have a, a much much happier world. That that would be the coolest thing. Yeah, I think that's really our goal, you know, and understanding that we don't have free will is just one. It's just it's just a means by which to help the most of humanity get to that goal. And here's the deal, George, is now um, I haven't read the tipping point yet. It arrived in the mail and I haven't had time to look at it. But, you know, I've been thinking about the idea that things start out small and they get big. And, well, just think about. The majority of the world as it is right now, you know, they believe in a number of things. They, they believe, um, yeah, for one thing, they believe in free will. Another thing, they, they believe in God or a higher power, as we mention a lot. Well, whenever you get the majority, you, even if you can't get all of them, if you can get over 50% of the, the world to do something, like half of the, you know, like at least half of the world has established that they know how to be happy. They really know how to be happy. They've learned how to practice happiness. They've learned the the right practices and beliefs that that achieve happiness. Well, then guess what happens? Then you've got a sort of a peer pressure going on like, "Hey, there's all these happy people. I want to be like them." So then we you know, happy people become so attractive that the s sad people learn from the happy people and be and if in that world nobody's believing in free will then people aren't going to tell them well just freely will yourself to be happy they're going to help explain the causes of what makes them happy yeah what's cool i'm not sure if gladwell gets into this very specifically in the tipping point but like it may actually not be as high as 50 percent like i think it may it vary it may vary depending on what exactly the um the thing to be popularized might be. But like with happiness, I think if even, let's say, 10, 15% of the population really got it, you know, they had these epiphanies and, and just understood that the happiness is what life is about, then that, that would probably be enough to like to create a very powerful happiness industry to, to make sure that these happiness pills are available and they're safe without side effects. So yeah, it, it might be, you know, a much you know, fewer people to just all of a sudden, then just like, then soon after that it would become everyone. 
be very cool. Like cell phones, I guess. Probably cell phones probably happen in the same way. After a certain percentage had them, then all of a sudden, you know, marketers realized that everybody would want them and that the cost came down and all. Yeah, it's absolutely true because just look how certain things catch on. Look at look at the YouTube videos that that have like you know 13 million views and stuff. It'll be a funny cat video, or it'll be pink fluffy unicorn dancing on rainbows. Like, <laughs> it's I mean some some internet meme will get started, and then before you know it, it's everywhere. And obviously things wouldn't spread if people did not derive pleasure from sharing them. Absolutely, yeah. I'm that. That's the thing. I, I actually, um, at a happiness club meeting on Thursday, I met two young kids. One of them's from England, and his, his girlfriend is, I think, from Dubai. They're both animators. And I checked out their, their videos. Apparently, it's to do animation. Like The guy said, like, for 20 seconds of animation, it takes about a week to do that. It's really, you know, I had no idea it was that complicated. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, you know, I'm going to suggest to them if they come to the next meeting at next Thursday, I'm going to suggest, listen, you know, try to get something, you know, based on viral, you know, a, a brief animation based on, um, on happiness to go viral. That, 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 that's one way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and things like that, certain things catch on if they're in animation form. For example, you know, the, the movie Frozen finally topped Beauty and the Beast as my favorite Disney movie. Because cool. for years it was Beauty and the Beast. No other Disney movie compared to Beauty and the Beast because of the messages contained, you know, in it. Like with the Beauty and the Beast, the, the message is that someone can love you for who you are and it doesn't matter that you look like a big hairy beast. Yeah, yeah. I loved good. that. I just loved that message so much. And it was actually Gaston who was acting like the monster. But of course, you well, can't blame him. He didn't have a free will. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but then Frozen, the reason that Frozen meant so much to me, and it has to many people, is that you don't, like, don't, you know, you don't follow the advice that Elsa's parents gave her. The conceal, don't feel, hide who you are, hide things about yourself. Because what happened was she exploded eventually, and then the whole land was frozen. And <laughs> it's like what happens when real-world problems meet magic. <laughs> That's cool. I haven't seen Frozen yet. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out. That yes, good. you will want to because it's like it's it's become such a popular thing. And yes, but just definitely, there are certain messages contained in each Disney movie. Um, you'll notice, um, like, you know, it, yeah, there's just so many that I go on forever about that, but I won't, um, but like basically, um, yeah, there's, if something is embedded in a movie, then it becomes popular. The, the songs in it, the storyline in it, everybody talks about it. Well, it certainly happened with My Little Pony, no doubt about that. Um, so that's what we need is we need something to go viral. And I think that, we, yeah, we may eventually get a documentary made about the no free will thing, and that would be absolutely excellent. But I think it's going to take more than that. I think it's going to take, you know, different messages appeal to different people. There, there could be cartoons there, there as well as books. I think story formats are kind of going to be effective when people have story formats. 
you know, about certain things. Yeah. Another avenue with the free will thing is like, you know, in my last book, I, I connected it with climate change denial. And it's kind of like an obscure, you know, abstract kind of connection that many people who really don't know much about psychology wouldn't intuitively understand. But, you know, if, if like if some researchers, some psychologists follow up on that idea and do experiments where they determine that, hey, if people like believe in free will and these scientists are telling them that you, they and their friends and their family are destroying the, the, um, the climate, then, you know, they, they have to deny this because it's too, too um, severe an indictment for them to accept that that, that might be, you know, because like a lot of times, you know, for the free will thing, I think a lot of people don't, don't get the, um, the benefits. They, you know, I think you need a pretty strong Im imagination sometimes to really see how harmful the belief is. But if it were connected with something that's really urgent, like climate change, that might be something else that, that really, you know, finally gets the world to pay attention. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because while climate change is certainly pro probably one of the biggest issues, um, you know, the fact that it's not a positive subject very much um, for people, it's still negative to think about at all. People don't like it. So yeah, bringing a positive message to um, the no free will message is very important. How it's how it's done is everything. Pre presentation is almost everything because something may be true, but if people see it in a negative light, then it tends to it tends to not catch on. Yeah, and again, like you know, if if we um, if we create that app and put that app out there with linking free will belief with you know, um, the um, fat shaming and, you know, with um, not being able to lose weight, gaining weight and stuff, that actually might, um, or just, just as a way to, to get people to understand that there's no free will even, you know, without the, the benefits of, of helping people lose weight. I mean, that, that'd be good also, of course. But, but yeah, um, again, it might be just the, the finding the right message. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that the whole weight loss topic is, a, it, I think it's probably the best lead that we're on so far because it's so obvious. Like, like I said, you know, it's one thing with climate change to deny it's happening. It, it's easy to do that if it's not directly affecting you. And, it, and, it, and it's easy with, with other forms of, of murder that are being done to think if it's not happening to you directly, it's not a big deal. But... You know, everybody at this point, either they, they've been overweight or they know someone who has. So it's relatable. You know, it's relatable on an everyday scale. I mean, no, nobody is going to say, well, it's just an opinion whether people are obese or not. Well, no, it's not an opinion. We can all see it. So unless you're blind, you know, you know. <laughs> right. And, and again, you just ask people like, well, if you have a free will, why can't you lose weight? Or why did you gain weight if you, you have the free will to, to not gain weight? Yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting too, George, because one thing about this whole weight loss thing is – now, the best people, and this, this, is, this is one of my impersonal opinions, but I think it makes absolute perfect sense, is the best people to go to for advice about weight loss are those 
who have who have been fat and they figured out how to lose weight. You know, I mean, don't don't talk to some person who's been who's been skinny all their life. You know, just some just some person who's never had any experience you'd want to go to someone who has experience and knows what they're talking about absolutely yeah and, and you know that's the deal is no amount of head knowledge no amount of book reading can can really um replace you know experience you know like 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 i've heard them say like um there's book smarts and there's street smarts you know <laughs> You know, there's practical experience that you've lived through, and then there's when you read when you're reading a book. You know, if you if you're reading about depression and you're reading about people who suffer from you know clinical depression, it's not the same as have having an experience where you've been depressed in your life. It's not the same at all. Experience is always more powerful than just a bunch of words. Yeah, I think one thing they've discovered is, in general, the most successful people in the world aren't, for example, the straight-A students. You know, the most successful people are like maybe B students, BC students, but they have, they're very good at emotional intelligence. They're very good at understanding other people, because I, apparently that's what a lot of, you know, success in business is about. Yeah, it really is, because what it comes down to is, yeah, Success does depend if you're living in a in a human society. It depends on understanding those other humans and how they think. That, that's that's very clear. I mean, not so much if you're just on a on a deserted island eating coconuts. Then you're then you know you could you would not even have the ability to talk. But it wouldn't matter in that case. But for most of us, we live in a society where um, communicating with other people is a very important skill so emotional intelligence is an important factor um and i've learned a lot of that lately just because talking to you guys on podcasts you know has just really helped me learn how to talk to people yeah um there's a, a guy daniel goleman he wrote a book called emotional intelligence it might be 20 years ago whatever but I think that's a great source to really like understand the importance of, of that kind of intelligence in the world. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, you know, happiness really is what it's all about. And I think awareness, just awareness of why you're doing what you're doing is everything. I mean, that's what the whole determinism message is, because what's funny is, Ironically, it grants you a strange sort of freedom. It's it's paradoxical, but you you like you do something and think, well, why am I doing this? And then once you think about it long enough, well, I'm I'm doing this not because I want to, but because I'm afraid of what other people will think of me if I do or don't do this thing. So then what happens, this is this is what happens with me, George. When I find out that I'm just doing something to please somebody else, sometimes I'm like, oh, forget that. And then I do something that I want to do. No, I hear you. I hear you. We're conditioned to please people a lot. And you know, it comes from like um, starting to please our parents. We're at, I think, the 60-minute mark, right? Yeah, so I guess it's about time to end this episode then. <laughs> okay. Um, you've been listening to Impersonal Opinion with Chandler Klebs and George Ortega talking about, you know, what makes people happy, the feeling of happiness and how happiness is really what it's all about. So I hope you've enjoyed something, and so try to go and be very happy. <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah, thank you for listening, and goodbye.